Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best tech leaders in the world to help you scale from 2 million to 100 million ARR. Today, we have a very special guest. Um, her name is Alison Pickens, the COO at Gainsight. Alison, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's, it's really a great pleasure to have you on the show, Alison. And uh, let's get to know a little bit more about yourself. So how did you end that Gainsight and what, what, what was your career until then? Absolutely. So, um, you know, for me, I think one of the uh, most important themes over the course of my life and my career has been helping to organize community in support of bigger goals. Um, you know, I think people like to say that uh, there's nothing that a small committed team of people can't do. And I'm a big believer in that. Uh, so, you know, growing up actually uh, building teams within my high school was something that I got a lot of joy from. I was captain of my lacrosse team and, uh, you know, really enjoyed, uh, you know, all the things that we did together and, um, you know, built out a number of student organizations over the course of high school and college. Um, you know, ultimately, I decided to go into business because I felt as though it was the best environment in which to truly build things, right, that like achieve great, great goals. And so I ended up uh, going into a couple of business boot camp programs at BCG and management consulting, Bain Capital and private equity, um, learned a ton about how businesses operate, um, where the value drivers in a business are how executives tend to think about things, you know, having partnered with many of them, and you know, how to build um, really a great, very valuable business. Um, ultimately, I came out to Silicon Valley in the hopes of um, building out my own organization and ended up joining Gainsight after Bain Capital Ventures uh, actually led the Series B round back in 2013. We were super small at the time, had about a million in annual recurring revenue, and we you know, built out um, you know, as, as I mentioned, a really strong community of uh, customer success folks over the years, which has been, um, you know, probably the core reason why we've been able to grow to, you know, the large company that we are today. Right. So what is Gainsight? What is the mission of, of Gainsight? Yeah, Gainsight is, uh, first of all, a software company. That's uh, probably what we're most obviously known for is that we're a venture-backed SaaS company we have a customer success platform. Um, we've been able to build that platform through uh, building up expertise about what the customer success profession is, um, what are the metrics that you should hold customer success accountable toward, what are the processes that you should build. And we've been able to gain that expertise uh, largely because of the community of people that we've built. So you know, although we started selling into customer success management almost six years ago, uh, we are, uh, you know, increasingly actually working with many different teams across the company, ranging from customer success to sales, to professional services, to product management, um, to account management, to finance, to IT, because truly it takes a village to make customers successful. And, um, you know, we need to make sure that that, cu that customer focus actually is coming, you know, top down at the company. Got it. And in terms of the stage of growth of the company, so what's the headcount, uh, funding rounds, uh, and what are the challenges at, at Gainsight? We're about 650 people. So uh, we've grown actually quite significantly since I joined. Uh, when I joined almost six years, six years ago, we were about uh, a million in annual recurring revenue, very small. 
So I'd say we're, you know, solidly in that growth stage, right? We're not a startup anymore. We're also not a public company. It's very interesting. And I also um, uh, listened very recently one of the interviews of Nick Meta at Saster Podcast with Jason Lemkin. I strongly recommend that one. And we'll also have the opportunity to have Nick uh, in January in our own. And uh, that's awesome to, to have you today on, on the show. And there is something that we always discuss with, with CEOs. The first thing is uh, how do we avoid them to become the bottleneck? And this applies to every single executive as, uh, as well. But at a certain moment of the company, a certain moment of scale, uh, the CEO feels the need of having a kind of a, a sole um, person that might help him or her to go through all the hectic um, moments of the company while scaling up. And this role typically is the COO. And, and the role of the COO, sometimes it's very difficult or almost uh, every time to define what is the best COO for the CEO and what is the best CEO for uh, that particular COO. Uh, some CEO, COOs lead functions and our COOs have a more complementary um, perspective or role with, with a CEO. So how was the mix that you have um, identified that would be a better balance to kind of leverage the strengths of, of Nick and, and your own strengths as a CEO and COO scaling the company? It's a great question because I think that the relationship between CEO and COO is unique to every partnership. Actually, there's no single definition of what a great COO looks like. It really just depends on that relationship. In my case, I joined Gainsight in the very early days. So Nick and I have been working together again, almost six years just uh, an eternity in the world of tech. And, you know, I think <laughs> get to know someone at that level, there's a lot of trust that's built up and an understanding of, you know, where each of us is strong, uh, where we have the same strengths, where we have different strengths, where we complement each other. So I do think it's important actually to kind of cater that relationship to each of your unique qualities and what the company needs at the time. I do notice that there are a couple different kinds of COOs. On the one hand, you have uh, COOs who are brought in uh, often by a founder who's more technically oriented, more product oriented, mm -hmm. maybe more vision oriented. That COO uh, typically is brought in to run the company. So um, they're often running most functions except for uh, product engineering and maybe a couple of the staff leadership roles like C CFO and maybe, um, maybe head of people. So they're, 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 they might be a chief revenue officer plus. Chief revenue officer is often managing marketing, sales, mm -hmm. customer services, support. Uh, a CRO plus, uh, in this case, a COO might be managing all those functions, you know, plus a couple of other um, functions as well. Maybe they're running people, maybe they're running legal and others. Um, so that's a kind of run the company scenario. There's, a, there's another type of COO, which is um, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, the COO might be uh, sort of a staff function in itself. This might be just an, op you know, an operations function that's looking to create glue between other functions of the company. They're identifying, uh, you know, a strategy for the company working together with uh, all the different uh, line of business leaders. They might be helping to set goals to ensure that we're following up on those goals. Uh, for example, they might implement an OKR framework or objectives right. and key results, which we, we could talk about later. Yeah. Um, and so, so that, that uh, person may not be 
managing many functions, they might be managing one primary function that is enabling all the other functions to be successful. And then you have actually lots of COOs who are in the middle of those two extremes, again, depending on what's needed in the company. And actually their scope might evolve you know, pretty significantly over time. Um, so I, I definitely think it just depends on what's needed. And, and in your case, what, what is the model that you are kind of following with, with Nick nowadays? Yeah, we've landed somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. Um, and I actually, I have, like I implied, my role actually has changed a lot over the years. In the early days, I was running finance for a period of time. I built out sales development. I built out a sales operations function, you know, that, that, because that was what was needed at the time. Uh, today, I run, um, well, my, you might know my previous role was chief customer officer. And so that included professional services, customer success management, support, customer engineering. Um, I continued to oversee those functions, actually promoted someone on my team to be CCO, chief customer officer reporting to me. And then uh, there are other functions that I've built out. In addition to that, corporate development, which is M&A. Uh, business operations, which runs that OKR process that I was describing and other cross-functional initiatives. Um, and then uh, we acquired a business called Uptrinsic last year, which we've since rebranded to Gainsight PX for product experience. And um, I'm, I general manage that business across uh, multiple functions, uh, which, which solid line into the functions, but um, dotted line you know, into um, me as general manager. Um, there's also a business development team, which is partnerships and alliances, ranging from uh, private equity partners, systems integrators, and our tech partners that we integrate with. Um, so it's it's a it's a team that's responsible for pipeline generation. So as you can see, it's uh, it's a range of different functions, right? And uh, you know, for me, I'm I'm like I said, pretty entrepreneurial have loved building over time. And whenever there's been an opportunity or need, um, you know, I've, I've you know, often raised my hand to make sure that we can get there. Absolutely, that's, that's really amazing. And in, in terms of, we, we also discuss a lot in the show, the evolution of the leadership team from one stage of growth to another. Like when it's very early stage, we just have the founding team and then we start building the first leadership team. And then we need to have the courage to, to build a second leadership team and a third leadership team for each stage of growth. And usually this is very painful and the structure and the executives on, on those different leadership teams are different. And the cycles on when scaling up are, are quite hectic. Um, so, and, and we are still human beings, not, not machines. So it can be very difficult to let go uh, people that were very important in a specific stage um, of the company. So how do you go through about reviewing your team for each stage of growth and what were uh, some of the most difficult or the most difficult changes and, and also you just shared before that you promoted someone from your team to shift customer officer that is also a joy I imagine as, as, as the CEO Definitely. nowadays. Absolutely. I, I think it's very important to make sure that you're continuing to evolve your team based on what the market needs from you, what your clients need from you, what your investors need from you, as well as what your teammates need as well. So it is a delicate balance over time. I do think that, um, you know, in different stages of the company, different 
skill sets are needed. In the earlier stages, you tend to see a lot of value coming from team members who are more generalist, who can handle ambiguity more easily, who are more creative, um, who like variety and, and multitasking, handling many things at once, and who thrive in an environment where change is happening very quickly. Um, I've seen people from a lot of different backgrounds uh, fulfill those attributes. It might be someone who is, you know, a, a product manager at an early stage company. It might be someone who is out of business school. Um, in general, though, I think there's sort of, um, you know, curiosity and bias for action that characterizes a lot of folks in the in that in that group. Um, over time, though, uh, as you move into that, probably, uh, you know, ten to a hundred stage, call it. Um, at some point during that continuum, you're probably going to need people who are um, more focused on uh, strong execution and generating very consistent results. In those early stages, we're building systems, frameworks, processes, but we're not following them as much because there aren't, they haven't been in existence yet. But in that 10 to 100 stage, uh, actually, there typically is a fair bit of infrastructure in place, and the kind of people who really like creating things may not enjoy that stage as much. Now, they might enjoy, uh, you know, areas of the business where there's still stuff to be developed, right? Um, also, it's possible that those people uh, emerge into positions of leadership where, as a leader, you need to continue to have creativity and thinking about the evolution of the business and building but you put in place systems that allow your team to thrive. And um, so, you know, those people might continue at your company, might be quite successful just in a different capacity from in the early days. And in addition, you'll want to bring in people who, as I mentioned earlier, are more focused on that consistent execution. In particular, you'll need folks who have, have run a playbook before in some cases. And so I, I think it's important to understand in which scenarios in your company, which you know, departments of your company, which initiatives, do you need a playbook that's already been created before so that you're not reinventing the wheel? And in which situations actually do you need to create something from scratch? Very good point. And uh, there is something nowadays that companies have, um, are obsessed about, but at the same time are struggling a lot with, which, which is the implementing the OKR um, framework. Uh, and so I always like to say that the, even implementing the OKR framework, what is much more value is the discussion and the alignment, not so much the result, because it needs to be an iterative process and uh, as much as quicker as we learn, um, uh, better we'll get closer to, to the objective or to the vision that we want to achieve. So what has been your experience defining OKRs at, at Gainsight? OKRs are an incredibly valuable framework. And actually, I wish that we had implemented them sooner. I think we could, could have benefited from them being at the, at the company-wide level, uh, probably in the very early days. Uh, it, you know, in the early days, we might not have had as long of a list of OKRs as we do today, but I still think it would have been useful. Uh, as we talked about, OKR stands for Objectives and Key Results. It was a framework that I believe was created by John Doerr, um, and, and Google has really championed this framework. I know they have a very specific philosophy and way in which they execute on that. Um, I don't think that every company has to follow 
the, the definition and playbook of OKRs to the letter. But I do think that the general framework can be helpful, probably, you know, in every growth stage company. Um, objective stands for, uh, or the, the objective, the O part of OKR is really about the spirit of what you're trying to achieve. And the KR is the key result or the metric, the quantifiable thing that you're looking to influence. I think the objective is very important to spend a lot of time talking about because it could be that um, all of all teams of your company are aligned around the definition of a certain key result or KR that people you know, believe in the importance of the metric, but they might believe that the metric is important for different reasons. And those that difference in belief might result in different decisions made about how to achieve the metric. And the way in which you achieve the metric is sometimes just as important as the achievement of the metric itself. So um, that under getting into alignment about what is the spirit of what we're trying to achieve here is, is super important. And um, the way in which we've rolled out OKRs at Gainsight, we started doing this about a year ago, is first of all, we identified five OKRs at the company level. Um, we had five essentially big priorities that we want to achieve, and each of those priorities mapped to a certain metric uh, on our PL, on our profit and loss statement. There might be an OKR that ties to sales bookings, there might be an OKR that ties to your uh, services gross margin, another OKR that ties to uh, perhaps the, the um, the pipeline that you want to generate in a new market. Uh, not every metric has to perfectly tie to your top level financial statement, but generally at the company level, you're going to have metrics that are more closely tied to your income statement. Um, and then what you want to do after that is cascade those OKRs to uh, specific teams. Um, and so there's a whole process that goes into departments brainstorming about what these company level OKRs imply for their team. And, uh, you know, then in turn cascading those OKRs uh, to individual team members. When I use the word cascade, by the way, I think it's, it's possible I might be misinterpreted to mean that this is about pushing uh, priorities down onto people. Um, actually, I, in my mind, the cascading process is much more interactive and has mm -hmm. is bi-directional, right? right? So um, even actually when we're identifying those five top-level company priorities, it's important for people, uh, particularly across the extended leadership team, to have input into what those are. And um, as the leadership team is thinking through the top five-level priorities company, they should have internalized already all the feedback that they hopefully had been gathering from their team over the past, over the past year even, and having absorbed that feedback from their team, know, you know, what's in the best interest of their, of their team members. Um, I've also, you know, on the other hand, I've encountered some companies that um, have solicited too much early input from their, from across their company on what are the most, the five most important priorities and then inevitably they get, you know, a list of a hundred things that, <laughs> that the <laughs> wants to do because everyone's excited and, you know, to have to decline 95 of the hundred ideas, um, nice. you know, that, that doesn't feel good for anybody involved. So generally I find it helpful for, you know, an extended leadership team to determine those top five, but then for there to be an even more interactive broad-based process um, as we figure out the OKRs for, for individual departments. Mm -hmm. um, I'll add that a big part of 
uh, making sure that we are getting cross-functional alignment around the spirit of these OKRs and around um, you know, what, what the actual targets or KRs are, is having a cross-functional structure that mm-hmm. exists for each of these major priorities. There should be an executive sponsor, someone who's on the executive team, who is formally accountable for that OKR. Um, and then there should be likely a team, we call them team leads, but they could be, you know, call them project managers who are responsible for coordinating a cross-functional team, which could be called a steering committee uh, that, again, represents all the departments affected by that OKR and who are contributing to that OKR. And then that steering committee should be meeting on, um, you know, a, a certain uh, prescribed cadence in order to figure out what those um, team level OKRs are to assess progress against those uh, OKRs and also to work through certain disagreements or conflicts that come up. Got it. And, and something that's usually always happen in the first cycles of implementing the OKRs is defining initiatives instead of KRs. Um, so, and, and by the way, uh, did it happen to you? And, and second, um, do you think that it is important to add initiatives? Because there are some companies that are adding initiatives uh, apart from the objective and the key results also uh, a clear strategic plan or action plan about how do we will um, execute and achieve those goals and those um, KRs. Yeah, actually, the way I see it is that initiatives essentially are embedded into the OKR framework. So in other words, let's say that our OKR at the company level is we want to generate this many dollars in uh, sales bookings in order to, or I'm sorry, um, uh, backing up, uh, you know, we would like to expand into this new market in order to fulfill this vision for a company as measured by this many dollars of sales bookings. There is a certain set of activities that need to be done in order to fulfill that OKR. And um, ultimately, those activities should be captured in the OKRs that are cascaded to the different departments and ultimately to team members. So for example, um, it's always hard to come up with these in advance, but um, a cascaded OKR to your marketing team might be um, generate brand awareness for our company in this new market as measured by so many dollars of sales pipeline generated, which ultimately contributes to that top level OKR of sales bookings. And so, um, you know, the marketing team might then cascade that pipeline OKR to its individual team members, which um, represent, you know, at the lowest level, like activities that these folks could be doing. So we we tend to see OKRs uh, becoming a little bit more initiative or activity oriented as, as these OKRs kind of spread through the organization to individual contributor levels. Got it. So just a, a quick summary for, for the ones who are listening to us today. So we, we went through what is the world-class COO, what is the uh, healthy relationship between a COO and the CEO, how it evolves during the scaling up process. Then we discussed the team structure as we scale, what is the new composition of leadership team and the different teams in the business. Now we are discussing much more strategy, direction, alignment with the definition of the OKRs. So now now we get to execution. So nowadays everyone is talking about 
uh, running our dailies, our weeklies, our monthlies, our quarterlies, our annual rhythms. Uh, we also have the all-ends, the one-on-ones, and multiple rhythms. What are the most important rhythms for you and the most effective for you as a leader? Yeah, and actually, as you grow as a company, the number of rhythms you've had, you, you have will probably increase for sure. We have a rhythm, actually, we, we call it the rhythm, capital R. We have a rhythm of our business that includes OKR definition. So the OKR framework that we just talked about, we have a whole rhythm for determining those OKRs and actually following up on them. Specifically, we have an annual strategic planning process, which involves identifying those five company-level OKRs. We then have a quarterly um, uh, sort of forum in which we determine the OKRs for that quarter. Um, at the end of the quarter, we then have, we call it a quarterly business review where um, each executive sponsor presents the progress that they had achieved against those OKRs that we decided on at the beginning of the quarter and talk specifically about the, the why behind the achievement, the root causes of what uh, generated success or failure in some cases. And then throughout the quarter, we have a cadence of business reviews that allow us to um, touch base on how progress is being made, particularly ensuring that these OKRs are being achieved in a way that's consistent with the spirit of the OKRs, which really truly that, that the underlying objective, as we talked about earlier. We've got a monthly business review for each of those five priorities that I discussed. In that business review, people talk about um, their, you know, the, the progress against achieving each of the OKRs. They might ask for help in that meeting. They might um, talk about, you know, certain conflicts that they're trying to work through in a cross-functional steering committee. And um, they might, you know, discuss ideas they have, you know, for the future and, and start to give visibility into what that, uh, pro that one, you know, what that priority will look like next quarter in terms of OKRs. Since it's always helpful to be kind of looking ahead. Um, and then on, it might be that on a weekly basis, the steering committee for each OKR will meet on its own without the executive team in order to work through issues that come up or to ask each other for help or, you know, generally hold each other accountable um, and, and, you know, collaborate um, in the spirit of getting the, the OKR done. So that's, that's the essence of, you know, the rhythm of our business. There's an annual cadence, there's a quarterly cadence, a monthly cadence, and and a weekly cadence. I will say that we've evolved this over time. So every quarter we're looking to tweak this and we ourselves over the past year, I think have gone from crawl to walk to run, so to speak, <laughs> in executing on this rhythm. And I do think that, like I said earlier, the OKR framework is generally a very helpful one. I think it's okay though to customize it a bit to your business and, and, and your needs. Got it. Very, very interesting. And we, we come to one of the critical components of, um, of a business, uh, which is related with cash and, and fundraising. So again, we discussed the two, strategy, execution, and now um, cash. But before we get into cash, uh, and also on the process of definition of, uh, of those OKRs, there is a huge pressure in, in a venture backed business which is typically to double or triple every single year. Um, what do you think about this very demanding expectation that can create a lot of frustration during those rhythms if we are not able 
to build the growth machine in a certain moment of growth or to scale up in a second moment of growth, especially when we are facing some of those growth plateaus from five to 10 or from 10 to 20 million ARR or from 20 to 50, we might face some of those uh, plateaus where it's being difficult to break them down and, and move to the next uh, layer of growth. Yeah, I'd say that today companies are growing faster than they've ever grown before. It seems like we're always hearing about the new fastest growing company, <laughs> right? right? And, uh, you know, there are a number of these like Slack or uh, Zoom or uh, Keep Trucking are, you know, among the ones that come to mind. And I know there are a number of others. So, um, you know, when, you, when you're raising money, in a lot of cases, you're signing up to, to grow very fast, particularly if you're mm -hmm. raising from venture capital investors. And the definition of fast growth, I think, is, is increasing. Uh, the bar is <laughs> raised every year. Um, so I, I do think that's, that's a reality of the VC-backed tech community. I will say that if your growth profile in your industry is different or your situation is different, it's worth thinking about what sources of funding make the most sense for you. There are some markets that uh, even if someone as a founder executed super well in, you still wouldn't grow as fast as a Slack or a Zoom. Notably, Slack or Zoom are examples of companies that are extremely horizontal. They don't typically have verticals that they're exclusive to. Essentially, everyone needs video conferencing. Essentially, every company needs a collaboration tool. So uh, in some ways, you know, the, your growth rate is capped purely by your own ability to execute not from external factors. Now, I'm sure these companies would disagree with me in some way. I'm sure there were external <laughs> obstacles that uh, they had to overcome. But, but I think relative to other companies, what I, what I said is true. On the other hand, some companies might be serving a very particular vertical, like healthcare, or um, you know, uh, maybe it's specific to a function like sales. And so in those situations, to some degree, your growth rate can be capped by what's happening externally. How fast, for example, is the healthcare industry growing? What's going on in the regulatory environment of healthcare? Um, you know, is there a certain secular shift in that industry that you're looking to materialize and that you're looking to capitalize on? Are you actually, as a company, trying to propel that shift or is it happening independently of you and fast enough so that you can grow quite fast. These, these are questions I think that come up when you're serving a particular type of market. And you know, if it turns out that actually the inherent growth rate in that uh, segment of the market where you're focused is, uh, you know, doesn't enable growth that matches most, uh, you know, what most VCs are looking for, it's worth thinking about, you know, is there another source of funding that I could be getting? You know, is it Perhaps like, you know, my way of achieving that rule of 40 is more on the profitability side than it is on the growth side. And if that's the case, perhaps private equity firms could be a better partner to be. Or perhaps I should be looking to um, fund my own growth. Um, you know, <laughs> that's, that's right. not something that we talk about as much as actually, you know, the option to, uh, to bootstrap uh, in the early mm -hmm. days and, and eventually, you know, in a more formal way uh, to fund future investments through uh, the profitability that, that you're earning. So, and if you, if you need to highlight two or three key lessons of the fundraising process with Gainsight, what were, would be those two or three that you would pick up as best practices scaling the, of 
doing the fundraising. <laughs> I think the most important thing is that you're choosing an investor that is going to be a great partner to you. And we've been lucky in that we've chosen investors, I think, and had the ability to work with investors who are just extremely supportive. Um, you know, particularly these are folks who uh, understand when sometimes things go wrong and they believe in you, they're there to support you and get you back on track. Um, these are people who are willing to be uh, helpful. They're thought partners in brainstorming. They uh, help you attract great talent. They send candidates your way. They'll sometimes um, call a client if it's, if it's helpful or call a candidate to convince them to accept an offer. So I, I think the most important thing to note is that, you know, when you're, when you're raising money, you're often bringing in people into your extended team. And like any people-related decision, you want to make sure that these are people who are going to be uh, culturally additive to your company and who are going to be, um, you know, instrumental or, or great partners to you in your growth going forward. Um, I'd say the second lesson that, that's generally important across our industry, especially right now, given what we're seeing in the IPO markets with, you know, certain IPOs having gone well, but other IPOs um, not having gone well, or as well as what they would have hoped, is that the rule of 40, as we talked about, is very important. Um, it's, you know, it's not okay to be burning tons of cash if, uh, you know, e even if uh, you are growing at a certain rate. So, um, you know, there, there's a kind of balance there that you need to be able to achieve. And, uh, you know, I, I think in some ways our industry, because capital has been so abundant, we've gotten used to the ability to burn tons of cash. And the reality is that that, that can only last so long. So we've got to be thoughtful about making sure that the high growth rates that we achieve are also sustainable from a cost perspective. I think that it's not a gainsight lesson. It's just like what, you know, what I've noticed, especially around the market. Got it. And, and we come to, to the end of the, uh, to the end of the show with one of our favorite questions uh, always, which is if you'd have the opportunity to meet yourself six years ago uh, when you were turning gainsight, what would you tell yourself? Great question. <laughs> I have to think about that a bit. Um, so I think what I would have said is that the community is so much more important than I think I even realized at the beginning. You know, I, I'll be honest with you, when I first got to Gainsight and I realized that we were investing a lot of time in planning events, I thought, we're a software company. Why are we right. focusing so much on these not scalable events, right? Where actually we could be selling or we could be building or taking care of our customers. And actually what I realized pretty quickly is that that community building strategy has been the number one most important asset that we've had as a company. Um, you know, our, our ability to learn from others was greatly enhanced by um, our bringing them together. Uh, which in turn helped us build great software and also, you know, have messaging that was catered to the market, sell in a way that was catered to the market and make our customers more successful. We were able to anticipate trends more effectively, which allowed us to plan better for the future. And, um, it, you know, we, because we, we really built those relationships with people in our community, I think we built the trust that was very important for us to be able to you know, sell to grow fast and to become the market leader. So 
Um, although it's a lesson I learned really in just the first few months of Gainsight, um, if I had to tell myself when I joined, you know, some, so, some, some learning that I, I hadn't realized at the time, it would be, you know, sometimes the things that don't seem to scale um, actually become your most scalable asset. And what a great way of closing the show. Thank you so much, Alison. It was really a lot of pleasure to have you on the show. You bet. Thanks for having me, Mike. And to our community, uh, as Alison was saying, it's, it's really important to have you on the show. And we are here to make your life easier, scaling you, your business from 2 million to 100 million. We are sure that some of the lessons that Alison shared with you will help you move forward in your scaling up journey. See you soon and keep scaling.